Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk, and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast channels, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook, or you can follow me personally at Chesterman Kate for more information about our new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Finally, please do visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for show notes, references and resources for all our podcasts. Now today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Alex Brightwell, who is a consultant paediatrician who specialises in allergy, and also by Liz Ingham, who is the lead paediatric allergy dietitian. And both Alex and Liz are based locally to me at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital. And together, we're going to be talking today about infant dietary allergies. So I'm really pleased to have such expertise and thank you both for joining me. So I thought it'd be helpful to to start by discussing cow's milk protein allergy, which seems to be a common concern in parents presenting with unsettled infants in primary care. And Alex, I wondered if you would mind starting by helping us to understand what are the different types of cow's milk protein allergy? Thanks, Kate. So cow's milk allergy is an adverse health effect, so something bad that happens on reproducible exposure to cow's milk. And we can think of of cow's milk allergy, like all allergies, as dividing into two main phenotypes, so two main groups. We can have IgE-mediated and non-IgE-mediated. So IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy presents with those classic allergy symptoms of rash, lip swelling, tongue swelling, breathing difficulty, and at its most extreme side, anaphylaxis. Non-IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy, however, presents much more insidiously with gastrointestinal symptoms, skin symptoms like eczema, irritability, distress after feeds. Now, of course, all these symptoms of non-IgE cow's milk allergy are very similar to some of the normal symptoms that we can experience in infancy, such as reflux, colic, and just the temperamental difficulties of having a newborn baby. And that's one of the challenges that makes cow's milk allergy so difficult to diagnose because there's so much overlap with normal baby symptoms. That's fantastic. Thank you. And I think it's a really good point you highlight that babies cry for many reasons and there may not always be an underlying diagnosis. It may just fall within the range of normal infant behaviour. And I think it's worth saying that that can be distressing for parents and, and often lead them to seek that underlying condition. Parents with infants who cry frequently may need more support with their baby. And I have found the website Purple Crying is a great resource to signpost parents to if they're struggling with frequently crying babies. And I'll put a link to this website in the show notes for this podcast. Absolutely. I think parents are often looking for an explanation for the symptoms. And if you look it up on Mumsnet or Google it, then often cow's milk allergy will pop up very early. I think it's really important to reassure our primary care colleagues that actually cow's milk allergy is quite rare, um, less than 2% of infants. And, and actually here in the UK, we probably do overdiagnose cow's milk allergy. Nevertheless, it is really important that parents' concerns are taken seriously and that we have a structured approach to thinking about making the diagnosis of cow's milk allergy so that we can um, you know, support those families where allergy um, is occurring, but at the same time reassure those families 
where it, where perhaps there's another explanation or where they don't need to put their baby on an exclusion diet. Thank you. And so you mentioned that there are these two different types of cow's milk protein allergy. So what should we be doing in primary care if the story is consistent with an immediate onset or an IgE-mediated hypersensitivity reaction? So the clinical diagnosis of IgE-mediated disease um, presents with skin symptoms like urticaria, wheeze, swelling soon after the ingestion of cow's milk, and that's really key. So if a baby is presenting with those symptoms, typically perhaps after their first bottle or maybe um, on weaning when they have a yogurt for the first time, then we need to think very carefully um, about referring them soon to secondary care and um, making sure that the baby excludes cow's milk from the diet. Um, this is because we don't want to put these babies at risk of a, a severe IgE-mediated allergic reaction, which at its most severe end could be anaphylaxis. And um, they do need uh, secondary care investigation, including allergy testing. If, however, a baby is already able to tolerate cooked milk, for example, in biscuits or um, um, baked cheese, for example, with no problems, then it's not necessary to exclude the forms of milk that they're already tolerating from the diet. So the key message is take milk out of the diet, but not if they're already tolerating cooked forms and refer to secondary care. That's fantastic. Thank you. And I think that's a really good point to highlight. We don't want to be excessively excluding things that we don't need to from these infants' diets. Now, my understanding is that there aren't any specific tests for the non-IgE-mediated or delayed onset cow's milk protein allergy, and that that diagnosis is more based on symptoms associated with the intake of cow's milk. So I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about how this diagnosis is made. As I mentioned before, the clinical diagnosis of non-IgE-mediated disease is suspected by the development of delayed symptoms. So we're thinking about gastrointestinal symptoms or cutaneous symptoms, such as eczema, that improve or resolve with exclusion of cow's milk and reappear with reintroduction. And that's really key because we know that babies are at their grumpiest, rashiest, and most distressed, usually around six weeks of age. And actually, these symptoms get better with time normally. So if we'd excluded cow's milk from the diet around that time, there may be some improvement over the next four weeks, even if cow's milk allergy wasn't actually the correct diagnosis. So it's really key that for non-Ig mediated cow's milk, we make the diagnosis by exclusion, but then also recurrence of symptoms on reintroduction of cow's milk into the diet. That's fantastic. And as you say, I think that importance of re-challenging is something that's really worth stressing. And Liz, I wonder if you just mind explaining a little bit more about how specifically we make this diagnosis and what we should be advising parents. Thank you. Yes. So obviously, as we said, the diagnostic challenge is really core for diagnosing non-IGE allergy. Um, but how we do that diagnostic challenge is actually also really important. If we simply switch babies straight back on to cow's milk containing formulas or foods, what we often see is, is um, symptoms such as discomfort, Maybe they become gassy, uh, maybe even lose stools. And that's because they've had four weeks on a hypoallergenic formula. And that change in formula may cause those symptoms and lead us to misdiagnose cow's milk allergy. So it's actually really important when we're doing the diagnostic challenge that we do it really gradually. So the um, advice is that we do a step-by-step -step re -challenge, starting off with 
the first bottle of the day. We simply exchanged 30 mils of the hypoallergenic formula with 30 mils of a standard infant formula. Um, and if no symptoms occur during the day and night, then the next day we would increase that to 60 mils and so on until we've switched the whole bottle. If any stage along that process symptoms are returning, that gives us a diagnosis of the non-IgE cow's milk allergy. However, if there aren't any symptoms that are reproduced, then um, parents can go on and switch further bottles across to the standard infant formula. And again, if there are no symptoms following that, this would confirm that it wasn't a cow's milk allergy um, and things have just settled over time, as Alex um, discussed earlier. Um, there is a really useful printable resource um, produced by IMAP guidelines, um, and that can be printed out and given to parents. That's a really useful um, resource to explain how to actually do that challenge. Thank you. And I'll make sure we, we put the, the link to those guidelines in the show notes for this podcast. And, and I think it's it's really helpful what you say. I've certainly been guilty of the past of just doing the exclusion and then telling the parents to go straight back onto the milk. And, and yes, the, the, the child or the infant does get symptoms again. So it's really good to understand that we should do that in a gradual manner. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about what you advise breastfeeding mums who are concerned about cow's milk protein allergy. I think a really important point here is that cow's milk allergy in breastfed infants is really rare, around half a percent in one study of about 2,000 infants. So this means, again, that we need to think really carefully about taking a good history and looking for those symptoms of allergy. So we're looking for multi-system involvement, for gastrointestinal, for cutaneous symptoms. If there is sufficient concern, again, we're thinking about exclusion and reintroduction into the maternal diet to make the diagnosis. We know that in the UK, breastfeeding rates are really low. And this is one area where we need to be absolutely certain that we're supporting our mums to continue to breastfeed. A diagnosis of cow's milk allergy is not a reason to switch over to formula. It's really important to look after the nutrition of our, our mums. And I know that this is something that Liz feels passionately about and we'll talk about later. Um, one thing that I would like to add is that if the symptoms don't go away on cow's milk exclusion, I would really like to try and avoid taking multiple foods out of the maternal diet. Occasionally we see mums who come to our clinic who are avoiding milk, egg, soya, peanut, um, perhaps legumes as well. And this has a really detrimental effect on, on mum's nutrition. So if you are still worried about allergy and the symptoms haven't resolved on exclusion, then I think, well, firstly, is allergy the correct diagnosis? Do we need to be thinking about something else? Or in that case, please do refer early because we want to support our breastfeeding mums to continue to breastfeed and, and to look after their own nutrition. Thank you, Alex. That's fantastic. And Liz, am I right in thinking that, that you would help support mums um, who were needing exclusion diets because of infant intolerances? Absolutely, yes. Um, we would um, spend time talking to mums um, about the importance of making sure that their diets are nutritionally adequate um, and uh, making sure that all of the um, vitamins and minerals that um, mums are missing out on if they're cutting out cow's milk from their diet are replaced. So when breastfeeding, the requirements for vitamin D and calcium are increased. So the recommendation is 10 micrograms per day of vitamin D and 1,200 milligrams a day of calcium. Now, cow's milk is 
the most valuable source of calcium in our diet. So when, when this is being cut out, it's really important to make sure that mums are switching on to alternative products that contain and fortified with calcium. Um, it's still going to be really difficult to achieve that level just through dietary intake. So we recommend that mums have a multivitamin and mineral supplement that contains these levels on a daily basis to ensure that her milk is... Um, sorry, to ensure that her diet is adequate in these vitamins and minerals. We would advise mums on suitable products that they can switch on to in place of cow's milk. And there's lots of alternatives in the supermarkets. We don't recommend in the first instance switching on to soya milk and soya products. We, we don't advise cutting it out of the diet, but we wouldn't switch on to soya milks, yogurts and cheeses initially purely because there is a high cross-reactivity with soya and cow's milk allergy. And this can complicate the diagnosis in those initial weeks when we're doing the, um, the challenge to see if, if this is a cow's milk allergy. So we would advise in those instances using the oat, coconut or, or nut milks. Um, the soya is something we would then um, look at um, putting back into the diet if a diagnosis is made for cow's milk protein allergy. That's fantastic. Thank you. So I think that helps cover a lot of the, the important information about a maternal diet and breastfeeding infants. Um, and so I think just if we can, just moving on to think about how we would manage formula fed babies. Um, and I must be a bit to being very confused about the different types of formula milk. Um, and I wonder if we would be able to, to discuss a little bit about the indications for different formulas. Yes, so first of all, just to re-emphasise, if a mum is breastfeeding, um, to advise them to continue to breastfeed. However, if they are using any top-up feeds or if the baby is formula-fed, then we will need to prescribe a hypoallergenic formula. So there are two different types of hypoallergenic formula that are available. We have our extensively hydrolyzed formulas. These formulas contain proteins that have been broken down into smaller pieces. These are less allergenic and around 90% of infants with a non-IgE cow's milk allergy will tolerate these extensively hydrolyzed formulas. There are two types of hydrolyzed formula, the whey-based and casein-based. We would use the whey-based as our first-line formulas because they do contain some lactose, which makes the formula more palatable. Um, in addition, there are some benefits from a formula containing lactose. It's a food for the good bacteria in our guts. Um, however, if the whey-based isn't tolerated, then we can move on and try one of the casein-based formulas. The other type of formula available is the amino acid formula, and this is based on single amino acids. Um, we only use this if there is severe allergy, um, if there is significant faltering growth, or we may go on and use an amino acid formula if a baby isn't tolerating the extensively hydrolyzed formula after a good two to four week trial. With the amino acid formulas, just to also um, discuss, at the moment, they are very overused um, with much higher proportions of infants being prescribed amino acid formulas, way above the 10% that we would expect to see. Um, so we would encourage to always um, use the extensively hydrolyzed formula as our first line feeds and only move on to amino acid if it's absolutely necessary. Thanks, Liz. I think it's worth just having a word about lactose 
and lactose intolerance at this point, the diagnosis of cow's milk allergy is often confused both by parents and professionals with that of lactose intolerance, where in fact they're completely different pathologies. So lactose intolerance is deficiency of the enzyme lactase and leads to diarrhoea. It doesn't lead to the multi-system presentation that we see in cow's milk allergy. So it follows therefore that lactose-free products aren't suitable for people with cow's milk allergy. And that's why we never recommend a lactose-free formula for infants where we're suspecting cow's milk allergy. Similarly, lactose-free products aren't suitable for older children with cow's milk allergy. And occasionally we do see children with um, IgE cow's milk allergy who can present really very unwell if they've had lactose-free products because they do still contain cow's milk protein. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that. And Liz, you mentioned about the palatability of some of these milks. I know that um, some babies do struggle to move on to them. If if you have a baby who doesn't have a severe or an immediate um, reaction, is it possible to mix then um, normal formula with the, the new formula to try and to try and move them onto it more slowly and, and to get them to tolerate it? Yes, uh, many babies um, won't take the hydrolyzed formula straight off. So yes, we do. Absolutely. We advise just to titrate the, the new feed in with the feed that they're on at the moment. So um, just exchanging one fluid ounce each feed. That's great. So once in primary care, we've confirmed this diagnosis with our de-challenge and re-challenge approach. Um, we're obviously going to be referring in, into someone like yourself, Liz, and the paediatric dietitians. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what you do in clinic. Thank you. Yes. Um, so it depends on the local area and what resources for dietitians are available. So parents, families may be seen either in a one-to-one -one clinic setting or it could be a virtual appointment or potentially they may be invited to a group session. Um, usually during that um, appointment, we'll discuss how to wean their babies onto a milk-free diet, ensuring that they're meeting all of their nutritional requirements and also discussing alternative products that are available, um, aiming to give parents the knowledge and confidence that they can feed their, their child, their infant, a nutritionally adequate milk-free diet. Um, we also talk about recipes, um, using the plant-based alternatives to cow's milk, so the different yogurts and milks and, and different products that are available, how to read food labels. We would also then um, go on to discuss the reintroduction of cow's milk when this is appropriate. And at what age would that normally happen? Yes, so for most infants, we'd be looking to reintroduce cow's milk from the age of around 10 to 12 months or at least six months after diagnosis. Um, we discuss this on an individual basis with, with parents. That's interesting. So there's no fixed time that we would necessarily do that. And then when introducing um, milk again, I understand there's this idea of the milk ladder that we would gradually work up. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so the ladder, milk ladder is a practical tool um, for parents to follow that will help with the reintroduction of cow's milk protein back into the diet. It's based on the fact that cow's milk that has been cooked is less allergenic. And in particular, where there's flour present, this also further reduces the allergenicity of the cow's milk. So what we're doing is we're starting off with the lowest allergen form of cow's milk in a baked milk biscuit and gradually working up a step-by-step -step guide until we get to the fresh, uncooked cow's milk at the top of the ladder, which is the cow's milk. Once parents have started the milk ladder, 
then we recommend they work through it step by step. At some point along the ladder, they may meet their child's tolerance level and they may start to develop a few symptoms. The important thing here is that parents don't then cut the milk back out of the diet because the whole principle of the milk ladder is that we're gradually introducing to build up the infant's tolerance to the cow's milk protein. So what we recommend is pulling back to the previous step that was tolerated, sticking there for a while, and then retrialing the next step at a later date. And then hopefully the next time they try it, they will tolerate. And gradually, step by step, they can work up the ladder. And often it's a case of taking two steps forward, one step back. Um, And the whole process of the milk ladder can take variable amounts of time. For some infants, they work through the ladder step by step without any problems and start to tolerate the fresh milk very quickly. For others, it can be a process that takes years. And there's no predictor for that. We just have to work through it step by step. Fantastic. And, And is this usually successful? Is cow's milk protein allergy something that most children do grow out of? Absolutely. Most children with cow's milk allergy will outgrow it um, around the age of five or even earlier. Um, Sometimes it does take time. And we always say to the families, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It can feel like two steps forward, one step backwards. And that's totally normal. Um, But we've had a a lot of success with going through this ladder, which is um, an international approach. There's lots of different versions available online. A uh, milk ladder is available on the MAP website that's going to be signposted as part of this podcast. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you both. Now, I wondered if we could just take a few minutes um, at the end of this podcast to, to discuss other potentially allergenic foods and the current evidence and advice surrounding their introduction into an infant's diet. So there's been some um, fantastic evidence over the last decade, which has really changed our thinking about introduction of allergenic foods into baby's diet. Historically, if there was thought to be a high risk of allergy, perhaps if there's eczema or a family history, we've been cautious about introducing allergens into baby's diet early. However, there was a a study called the LEAP study, um, it's about a decade ago now, which demonstrated that For infants at high risk of developing peanut allergy, so in this particular study it was egg allergy and eczema, early introduction of peanut prevented the development of of peanut allergy at high risk infants and there was a markedly reduced um, incidence of peanut allergy in those infants who were exposed to peanut early on. And subsequent studies have supported this. So what's now recommended is that for infants at higher risk of allergy, We get on and introduce allergenic foods, including peanut, egg and milk, from four to six months of age. So although the WHO guidance remains that exclusive breastfeeding is best for babies until six months, for those infants at high risk of developing allergy, such as those who already have a diagnosis of allergy or who have eczema, the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology guidelines now support early introduction of allergenic foods from four to six months of age. So this means that when your baby is ready to start weaning, there's no reason not to get on and introduce peanut, cashew, egg, just as you would do with all those other early weaning foods. No, that's fantastic. It's really good to have that clarification. Well, once again, thank you very much, Liz and Alex, for discussing these topics with me today. I certainly feel a lot more confident in my approach to cow's milk protein allergy, and it's fantastic to have a greater knowledge of the evidence around the introduction of potentially allergenic foods, as well as understanding more about the invaluable work that you both do. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you too have found this helpful. Please feel free to get in touch via social media 
or email me at kchesterman at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. <laughs>